Hey, Fixing Fundraising fans, it's Tom here, and what a great episode we have in store for you. In this episode, we were joined by Rakesh Lakani. He's the Executive Director at Future Possibilities for Kids in Canada. So we were reaching out across the pond for this episode. Rakesh believes that every donor, supporter and volunteer should feel deeply engaged with their interactions with the cause, which I couldn't agree with more. Whilst also learning about the role that they play in the solution, and the role that they play within that organisation, he believes the duty of a fundraiser is to match interest and intention with impact. So really make sure that every step of the journey is infused with uh, passion. And really that means creating a journey that's unique and personalised and meaningful for all stakeholders, which I couldn't get more behind even if I tried. It was really great to tackle such a big topic with Rakesh. Should we even exist in the first place? Has philanthropy really created really created a market-driven choice that makes it exceedingly difficult to succeed for the for the social good space? I think we only just scratched the surface with this episode, and it was really, really great to hear Rakesh's thoughts and how we might approach things differently moving forward there's some really great suggestions in this episode it's quite broad thinking and i'm sure you'll agree that it makes for good listening I must apologize it's a little bit crackly in in some places in the audio but uh, again another thing to blame on the pandemic as always wherever you are whatever you're doing i hope you're safe and well and happy listening Hello and welcome back to Fixing Fundraising. I'm Andy King, joined as ever by my wonderful co-host Tom Dufresne. Hello Andy King. How are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Enjoying my tier two experience? I'm enjoying my tier two experience much more than I could be because as I just told you offline, I found a shop that sells hash brown waffles, so Mm. life is good. Anyway, that's not what we're here for today. Today we're joined by the wonderful Rakesh Lakhani. Hi there. Rikesh, say hello. How are Hi, Rikesh. Yeah, we're good, thank you. And we're excited for today's episode because you have a rather spicy opinion to share with everyone, I believe. Mm. Um, Rikesh, over to you. Right. So uh, what I really, uh, a lot of things that I, I do love about being in this sort of social purpose space. So thanks for giving the space to, to share the things that we, we want to fix also. Um, so for me, I think there's a few kind of key things that, that I really want to focus on. I mean, one of them is actually recently the, the head of Oxfam Great Britain was talking about self-preserving institutions. And I do sometimes wonder about the way that we operate. Are we operating uh, to, obviously we're operating to do good, but are we also operating to kind of preserve uh, ourselves? And the way that the, the systems that we're in really do promote a market-driven approach to social good. So we have, as charities and in social good, uh, and I use those terms kind of interchangeably. I don't really love the term not-for-profit that we use in, in Canada. Uh, but um, the the idea that it's about who can market the best. So, I, I mean, I kind of have some issues with that because with philanthropy, when you have market-driven choice, it sometimes makes it difficult to fund some of these prevalent, complex, uh, difficult issues. And it just really means the best marketer wins. So, for example, um, something like you know homelessness, which is definitely a affordable housing and homelessness. It's a huge issue, and there are 
some folks who maybe don't understand uh, what it's about or they have certain preconceived notions. And there's certain causes that um, I've heard uh, uh, some, term, some terms and some, some phrases in our, in our sector, but it's, it's quote unquote easier to market certain things. And that to me is a shame because the issues that are prevalent in our society are the ones that really should be getting the most attention. And sometimes that's not, you know, that's not always the case. So that's sort of a, an uh, initial kind of uh, a thing that I wanted to sort of put forward. Um, another piece is that with fundraising, I feel like we are, this goes back to that self-preservation notion, though we are fundraising to do good, but a lot of times I feel like we're, we're fundraising, we're filling in gaps that really shouldn't exist. And with this acceleration of fundraising becoming more and more effective and more professionalized, um, it's actually making us better at doing this, which, which I think in turn leads to more pressure and more fundraising, uh, more pressure being put to fundraising and sort of public responsibility for uh, managing social and public good. I, mean, I really think a lot of that stuff should be done at the government level. I mean, I can speak you know, here in, in where I live in Canada that we used to have, you know, vision care and dental care and things like that covered. And then those were sort of over time slowly taken away. And in some cases, charities uh, and other organizations have come in to fill that gap uh, and, and using fundraising as a as a way to do that. But um, to me, the, the challenge is that the better we get at fundraising, the more it kind of forgives the central bodies, I guess, of the state, if you want to call it that, for uh, for not doing those things. Because they're like, well, we have, look, we have a mechanism for doing that. Uh, but then that also relates to uh, the first issue, which is that if we're in a market-driven world, then how are we going to ensure that some of the issues that uh, are a little harder to understand are going to get that attention uh, they deserve. Uh, and then another real piece that I really would love to see us continuing to have more discussion on is this whole concept um, around tax avoidance uh, or what's also called a smart financial strategy. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism worldwide, you know, especially in North America, I would say, but worldwide around the idea of, you know, billionaires and like, are they paying enough taxes and things like that. And I mean, I understand it's being promoted as an effective financial strategy. And then how much sort of funding uh, for the public good is now no longer available? So I think we've seen that happen where we um, have uh, individuals who uh, are smart. It's, 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 again, it's not criticizing the concept of tax uh, avoidance. It's a sound financial strategy uh, that's been promoted. Uh, so if it's, if it's legal, then you know do, do your thing. But then you could sort of donate maybe a fraction of those taxes and get a tax benefit on that donation, of course, again, and then be kind of seen as almost uh, a hero in the story, too. So I know there's some things about the, the way that things operate that really I would love to see us continuing to to pursue and evaluate a bit further. I think your point on um, on philanthropy creating this market-driven choice is, is really interesting because it also, um, because it's a, it is that market-driven, it, it kind of, it waxes and wanes and comes in, in peaks and troughs. So people give to what's uh, to what's fashionable and, and, and what they think they can make a difference in. And I think the thing that, that could really suffer there is not always the best marketing campaign wins or the best marketer wins, but also the the most attractive or most simplest cause can, can win too, where people think that they are A, making the biggest difference, but B, as you said, m much more complex needs like homelessness, which is... Um, incredibly complex across a broad spectrum of, of every society that it, it, it affects become much more difficult um, causes to like package up and market. 
do you do you think that's been exacerbated by the pandemic? Do you think how do you think the the pandemic's affected that kind of like market driven choice where you are in Canada specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, we did see um, an initial surge of funding going to a lot of causes that were, I guess, perceived to be the most important ones at the time. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not minimizing, of course, that they are important. Uh, but we did see a lot of funding going, naturally speaking, to uh, to hospitals, to uh, to food security organizations, and obviously those are things that are critical when we're facing such a global crisis. So it's not to say that those those things shouldn't have been done. It's just there are there, there I have seen other organizations though that um, might be stretching a little bit in terms of of how they're responding to COVID. I, I think the best thing to do is to to be honest about your role in supporting you know individuals, families, society, children, whatever it happens to be uh, during this time. And you just really can't sort of overstretch that and overstate it. So I, I, I think that that's an important piece where we're not overstating our role. We're being honest about it. And I think if you have the right connection point, people will get it. If you're an arts organization and it, it's maybe less tangible as to how uh, directly you're supporting COVID response and relief, but I would say that art organizations uh, so, you know, they fulfill a very, very important role. And, it, and and I think I saw a tweet or the other day, which was, imagine uh, if you think that art is not important, imagine going through this pandemic without, you know, music and art and movies and, and, and books and all that. Uh, and so I think that's a really, you know, critical thing. Uh, I think the other part in that too is not to um, exploit your beneficiaries for the purposes of fundraising. And that's, I think also I've seen a little bit of that in COVID where it's trying to overstate the needs of the community or, or position them in a certain way. And I'm like, there's, there's, there's an element of dignity that can sometimes be lost in that. But I think that's a, that to me is, is what I have seen a little bit. I mean, I would say for the most part, I've seen most organizations, uh, you know, marketing responsibly, fundraising responsibly and being honest about their role. I think I'm probably more concerned about the organizations that decided to, and maybe still just have been continuing to sort of um, not fundraise because they don't want to, be perceived as bothering donors, and even a few months in, I'm still seeing that. But that's sort of a that's a whole other uh, piece of uh, challenges that I, I sort of see where we have a very conservative approach sometimes. But I think those are the two pieces. Two pieces for me is ensuring that your role is as clear, you're not overstating it, as well as not exploiting um, beneficiaries for the purpose of financial gain. I think there are so many different routes that this conversation could take but the one that I'm really interested to take us back to is that role of um, philanthropy becoming effective um, and effectively forgiving the state's inaction by by stepping in and what that assumption causes. Um, a really great example that comes out of the pandemic, um, Rikesh, I don't know if you saw it because it's very UK based, did you hear about Captain Tom? I did, yes. <laughs> the the like kind old man who did a hundred laps of his garden to fund the NHS and raised several millions of pounds, which is awesome. But the NHS is very much like a government body. Why is an old guy having to do laps of his garden so that we can get healthcare? And it's uh-huh. and it's a really, as you say, it's a bit of a worrying trend because what if they see that as a green light to cut back funding because they're like oh it can come from from the public when the funding already comes from the public in the form of taxes absolutely that's that's a that's a great example and i am familiar with that example and it's a it's a great way to highlight what we're talking about i, I mean another example for me is even you know in, in schools we've seen that schools are you know chronically 
uh, underfunded. And, you know, I remember when I went to, to school, um, it was, um, you know, it was about like we were given, you know, pencils, papers, all that stuff, too. And, you know, now it's sort of that sort of changed. And so those are little things that if over time I've noticed, you know, are, are not happening uh, in a public space. And that's that's a challenge for accessibility uh, and, and for uh, equity is that, you know, you can't just assume that even taking something like that away is, is a fair thing to do with. We should really be providing that for, for, for everyone. Um, I did see an example, which is a locally based one, and I'm, I'm not sure this is replicated elsewhere, where fundraising at schools forms a significant amount of, of you know, what they're, what they're able to do. But in some communities, you know, you have this disparity where some communities were fundraising for iPads for programming and for kids to use, and some were fundraising for breakfast programs. So even when, even though overall the system is, you know, underfunded in terms of education, um, you also see a disparity in terms of what fundraising looks like, where uh, some, you know, schools in more affluent communities are fundraising for maybe, uh, I wouldn't, I'm not going to call the iPad a luxury item, it's an important learning tool, but then if another school is, is fundraising to make sure that children are not hungry at the beginning of the day, it just kind of further demonstrates some of these things we're talking about. So those are some really good examples because um, I guess the, the the question that that comes to my mind and and, and stomach when we talk about food because I'm hungry uh, <laughs> um, is if we have a if we know that the the school doesn't have the funding to afford the breakfasts for the kids, it's really uncomfortable to do nothing. And I think that's where a lot of fundraising drive comes from, right? We we see a discomfort and we know that it's within our power to make it better. And so funding is an obvious way of of making it, it better, of, of easing that discomfort. And I guess my my challenge is what other way is there of tackling it, of of not of not filling that gap by fundraising, but but getting it filled by by government or state instead? Well, yeah, that's that's a very remarkable question, and I I believe that it will not be a simple answer. Uh, it's not a cop out for me to say that I think, but that it sort of if it happens slowly over time, it reminds me of that uh, example. And I and I hate first of all, by the way, whenever we have examples or proverbs or whatever, I, animals always have to get hurt. I don't know why that is. But in that case of where they talk about a frog, who, <laughs> if you put a frog in a frying pan or uh, that's that's full of hot water it'll just jump right out but if you put it in the in the pan with cold water and slowly heat it up over time it'll sit there and boil to death and i think that that's what we're kind of talking about that just noticeable difference that things happen so slowly over time that if you look back to 10 years ago you'd be like oh my gosh so much has changed but any of these sort of in, in individual decisions are not um you know making it worse so so when you talk about that it's, it's like it slowly happened over time where we're we're filling in more and more gaps and so we can't just you know pull the plug on fundraising right now because that would cause a huge uh, challenge in terms of the services that are provided. But we also can't say then that, um, that, that that's a reason for us to keep doing what we're doing without really examining what's behind it. Uh, that speaks to so that systems piece around what's the system in which we operate and how much are we, without meaning to perhaps, uh, through self-preservation uh, of our institutions or, or charitable institutions perhaps, uh, how much are we contributing to those same um, issues? So would it would our time be better spent? And this is a hypothetical quest, uh, question, of course, but would our time be better spent um, banding and mobilizing people together to say, no, we actually want you know X or Y service to be universally available, 
Um, because that's, I mean, if you really look at strong community change, that's how it happens. I think fundraisers have an ability to mobilize people. So would that be somewhere where we can also influence change or, or organizations can influence change in that way? So it's, it's not an easy road, but I think if we never talk about it and we never look at it, then we're just going to keep going down this road and we're going to continue to see public services diminishing and having to be picked up somewhere. Uh, and, and here's the reality. I mean, I'm, I, again, I'm not as familiar with, uh, with the UK, but in Canada, I mean, social services are just, have been defined as chronically underfunded. Like there's just not enough available for everyone that needs it. So clearly what, whatever we can, whatever we, we determine about the role of the government and role of fundraising and, you know, charitable organization, we can definitely say that what's, what's happening now is not working. So if we can start from that basis, at least we can have a conversation about what to do. I think we all have to first acknowledge that it's not working and really say, let's do something about it. I think that's a really powerful um, piece that you just shared. Um, I know what you mean about the animals always getting hurt, but the, the frog in the in the saucepan is a really powerful point because even if you, as you say, look at schools um, to where we were five years ago, they are just getting worse and worse and worse, but only bit by bit. But when you think about it over a longer period of time, they have they have got way worse. And it's that it's that realization that there is an opportunity to to not necessarily jump out of the pan, but to change the pan that you're in, right? And I guess what I'm reminded of a bit is is some of the work uh, work that we're doing at, at Remarkable Partnerships, where we're talking to a lot of fundraisers about stopping obsessing with with money and and using money to fill gaps, but starting to seek value. And maybe one of the the pieces of value that we need to be pursuing as a fundraising community is is that collection of voices to say that this issue isn't okay, and that actually sometimes the most valuable thing that a person can give you won't be cash it'll be their influence it'll be their voice to government it'll be their voice to the people around them to to create that mobilization and change that cause rather than just sustain the impact that you're having at the moment i i i do agree with that that we have a role in partnership with the other departments or other organizations um to 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 be part of that conversation i I think we just focus so much on revenue and growing and think more funds and it's like well where does it all end like where do we see this going and a perpetual motion machine defies the laws of of, uh, physics right so it's like you can't just keep doing more and more and more and not really look at what's underlying all this I, i think that's something that i would love to see us spending more time on I mean, I spent uh, eight years working for United Way, and I know I have different names sort of around the world, but it was a difficult conversation because people didn't always understand the idea of addressing root causes. But it would be just for me to say that I we absolutely should be funding a lot of these uh, crisis services and frontline services, and we should also be asking the question at the same time, why is that happening in the first place? Like, how do we turn off the tap at source? So I, we absolutely should be providing funding for individuals experiencing homelessness. Uh, absolutely. That's that we can't just say, well, well, this is a long-term issue. We have to work on the system only. That doesn't support, uh, the, the kind of current challenge. And we also have to say, why does, why do affordable housing issues and homelessness exist in the first place? And, and, and then what are we going to do about that so that we can actually, I know, again, this is, this is like cliche to say this, but how can we, Put ourselves out of business. If, if you're really serious as a charitable organization or as a social good organization, um, if possible, 
that it's, you know, cure that disease or solve that world issue. And I think that comes back to the self-preservation piece that you have almost like industries of, of social good organizations now that there's, it's not necessarily in, in our, in our best interest sometimes to quote unquote solve the issue because then what happens? I, I would say there's room to evolve and change and, and move on to the next thing. But I, I think that's, that's a bit of a qualm that I, I have. So I just wish that we, we could mobilize around that, looking at long-term issues, looking at root causes, and, and then figure out a way, we're, we're smart people, figure out a way to then bring donors on side with that and funders. Uh, I think we can, I think we can do that. It's just maybe harder to do. And, um, when <laughs> this is, uh, we didn't, wasn't really planning to talk too much about this, but incentive models in our sector and how incentives are, uh, created for fundraisers, you're not always incentivized to do some of those things. You're incentivized to hit certain targets and metrics and, and, you know, that's if that's your focus you may not be thinking about some of these other things i think there's there's so much in that there's there's so many different ways that that conversation could go like uh one of the big problems that you've just hit on with with fundraisers um being incentivized by in-year targets and the question of how you could possibly create large-scale systemic change when you're always chasing immediate income or looking at models of, of how charities are set up and how they're regulated. I know how they're regulated in Canada is very different to how they're regulated in the UK. Um, and both have their have their issues, but there's there's so much to it, I think. But as you say, I think that first step is accepting that the model that we're currently operating in is one that assumes perpetual motion and working out why that is and how we change it. Yeah, I, I agree. We've got some, we've got some work to do in that space for sure. If you could speak to uh, anyone that's possibly listening right now and and feeling quite empowered by what you're saying, wondering how they can start to shift their thinking within their own organisation, is there any particular advice or call to action maybe that you'd give them? Yeah, I. I there's, there's only one small caveat there, and that's when we look at the dynamics of, you know, in an organization, if you're, uh, you know, a fundraising manager or, or something like that, um, and, you know, you're reporting it to somebody else, that you have to be prepared, unfortunately, when you have these kinds of conversations, that you may not get the reception that you're looking for. So I, I'm generally speaking positive, but I will say that's something you want to pre-inoculate yourself with. But I think it's asking questions. I think it's really... The only way that we can make our system better, especially if we truly love, if we love our society, we should be we should be able to criticize it openly and and try to work to make it better. So I think it's asking some of these questions and and bringing to light some of these issues. And if you're, you know, if you see a resource or if you see if you, if you want to have this conversation, have it with colleagues, but also have it with uh, your peers. And if if you feel open to doing your your you know your direct supervisor or the, the head of fundraising, because I, I think that. There's there's all this pressure, especially right now, like during the pandemic, it's even more pressure. To, we have to we have to do good. We have to raise more money. But I think it's it's each of us as a fundraiser plays a role, and I, I do believe this at my core. We don't just play a role in raising money for our organization. I mean, that's in the title, sure, fundraiser. We actually play a role in in how do we ensure that we're we're supporting and advocating for for bigger change, so that um, 
we're not just looking at dollars, but we're looking at, as you said before, you know, what is the value that we can add as fundraisers? So it's, it's, um, I think it's just a series of difficult conversations. And some of them will go well, some of them won't. But I, I think if you, if you recognize these things and you're, you're not feeling in a position to do something about them, that can be very, very frustrating. So once your eyes are open, you know, once you once you understand this, that all this stuff, um, then you start to, you want to do something about it. So it's, it's really a series of uncomfortable conversations because a lot of this will make fundraisers uncomfortable. If you say, don't take our eyes off the prize of raising all this money, because that's going to distract us from, from doing exactly that. This, this might be seen as a distraction. And I'm not talking about all organizations. I'd like to believe in my experience that fundraising leaders and charity and social, you know, good organization leaders are very, you know, open and, and, and to a lot of the conversations, but that's not always the case. So I think that's what I would offer. I'd say try to see what your role can be in initiating these conversations, asking some of those difficult questions within the circle that you occupy, as well as recognizing that it may not always be received the way you want, but, but find the champions, find the people that will support this and get them on your side to continue this conversation. Um, but I think, I think we really have to look at beyond your organization's walls too. So it's, it's also being part of that bigger discussion. I mean, if you see on, you know, if you're looking at uh, Twitter or in the news or on social media too, you're seeing these conversations bubbling up, take part in those conversations, amplify the messages that you believe in. Um, so it's, it's within your walls as well as, um, as part of the greater um, you know, movement, if you want to call it that, when these things come forward. All right, Rakesh, it's part two, where we talk about your peeve and your passion in the wonderful global charity sector that we're all in. Uh, 60 seconds on the clock to talk about your, your peeve, not related to the first part of the podcast. And off you go. I think something that bothers me is how a lot of us are working on comparable issues and uh, we can't really find ways to work together on them in a lot of cases. There are some good examples of this, but I feel like we can do better at that. If we're Whatever the issue is we're talking about, we're definitely stronger together, but a lot of times I see collaboration sort of only gets to stage one, which is conversations, sharing ideas, but I really want to see us doing more of saying if we band together, we can really put a dent in some of these major issues. And uh, I think that takes time and energy to, to do. So I get why it doesn't always happen, but I feel like uh, that's going to be the kind of, of uh, change and, and, and energy that needs to go into really changing some of these fundamental issues that we're trying to, to work on in, in society. And now the, the opposite. Rakesh, you've got 60 seconds to tell us your favorite thing about the sector. Go. What I really love about working in this space is uh, the people that you, you get to meet, the the good you get to see done in a community on a very close first or second hand you know basis. That is very fulfilling. It's very rewarding. I've met tons of incredible people who have you know, become friends and, and mentors and, and just people who I really look up to and admire and have really supported me in guiding you know my direction in life. I feel like that's something that in a sector there's, a, there's a quite an abundance of people that are like that, that uh, are really genuinely looking out for others and in service to others. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist anywhere else, but because this is the only sector I've spent my career in, I can vouch for it that for the most part, it's full of loving, kind and caring uh, people who, who really do want to see good in the world, but also want to 
support each other and doing that good. And now we come to question time. Ba ba ba! Question time. Nice. That's Tom's first ever <laughs> jingle for question time. Rakesh, you're a very lucky man. <laughs> and we'll get straight to it. Uh, Rakesh, is there one resource? Could be a blog, a website, a training course that you'd recommend to people to to read to get further insight on this topic? Yeah, I think one book that I've read recently, and it's gaining gained a lot of traction. So. I'm sure a lot of people know of it, but I still, if you haven't read it yet, Decolonizing Wealth by Edgar Villanueva is absolutely just remarkable insights into the kinds of things we need to ask ourselves and the kinds of things we need to think about as a, a sector going forward. So I would recommend uh, Decolonizing Wealth. Excellent. I'll put a link in the description. Rakesh, we talked about some pretty big themes in this episode, and I want to ask you if you see anyone really smashing out of the park in terms of collaboration. I know you focused on organizations working together. I wondered if you could give us an example of, of someone, of organizations that have done that really, really well. An example that, uh, that I saw of strong uh, collaboration, which is very unusual, unfortunately, uh, was something called the Resolve Campaign out of Calgary in Canada. This was basically a collaborative of a number of organizations and foundations that uh, were whose mandate was just to, to work on affordable housing and, and homelessness in the region, and they actually joined together. So the EDs and board chairs were all part of that collaborative, and they were doing a joint campaign to, to go out to, to everybody. Now this was a one-time campaign, and it finished in March of 2018. Uh, but you know that that was pretty incredible to see organizations that sometimes may feel like they're in competition with each other. And I, I don't know if I agree with that term competition when we're talking about raising funds for homelessness, but the fact that they were able to come together and raise a lot of money, and I'm sure that donors appreciated that approach saying, wow, like this is, I can see the power of this, that you're actually banding together to do this. So that's called the Resolve Campaign. It has completed, but I do wonder why we haven't replicated things like that or done more things like that, uh, at least in terms of examples I've seen in, in, uh, more recently. Speaking of um, really good examples, I actually spotted one um, over the last couple of years that I really liked um, from Cure Leukemia. They have a great website called putusoutofbusiness.co.uk and their whole uh, new mission statement is, will you help to put Cure Leukemia out of business? Obviously by curing leukemia. Um, and they talk a lot about uh, the issues with funding leukemia research and that how they think they can go about curing leukemia. So it's a really, really cool um, place to look if you are interested in, in charities that are not just looking to sustain the impact they're currently doing, but to genuinely solve their root issue. I just assumed you were asking the question. It's your favourite question. So we just, just sat in silence instead. Oh, God. And I was like, has too much time passed now? Is this usable? All right, it's going It's going in the bloopers. Uh, but I'm just going to – we're going we're gonna to style it out. Um, if you were followed around with a sign above your head, Rakesh, what would it say and why? And bear in mind, can have a two-sided sign. Uh, to me, I just – would want to probably there's two sides one side would be you matter keep going and i think that's really something we all need to, to hear 
and the other side would say you are responsible for the success of others. I just mm. have that kind of collective approach to success, which I really believe in. Nice. I love that. Those are two great messages. I was really expect, I was really expecting your second side to be like, not you. If you decided that you could <laughs> like someone, but uh, you're clearly a, a much more positive person than I am. Everyone thinks you in the green jacket over there or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> really singling out someone. <laughs> Brilliant. And Rakesh, our, our final question for you, probably the most important, I would say. What is your favorite joke? Wow. Well, I am a dad of three young boys, so I am all about dad jokes. And so I, for, for me, yeah. the joke that when we tell it at our, whatever we tell it, at dinner table or wherever else, it just makes the whole family just go up in laughter. I don't really know why. It's so simple. And I wonder if anyone's going to take anything I say seriously after telling you this joke. <laughs> but, uh, here we go. Uh, it's uh, knock, knock jokes. I'll need one of you to be my uh, receiving me. <laughs> knock, knock. Oh, who's that? Ketchup. Ketchup who? Why would you want to catch a poo? Nice. Phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Uh, I don't know why it just makes us all go into hysterics. So. <laughs> There clean, it is. Good, clean fun. Good, clean fun. Good, clean fun. That's brilliant. Uh, I guess last but not least, Rakesh, um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for, like, for bringing your ideas and getting this really important conversation started. Um, the podcast is always the beginning of a conversation. So where can people go if they want to find uh, more about you, more about the organization where you work, uh, anything where they can find you on uh, social media? Yes, I agree. Let's keep the conversation going. Always happy to chat. And thank you also, Tom and Andy, for uh, providing this space to have these conversations. That's really, really important. For me, uh, I'm on Twitter, pretty active, uh, at Constant Changes. So feel free to ping me, reach out, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn, and let me know why you'd like to connect. I'm always looking to connect with anyone who wants to just share ideas and have these conversations. And in terms of the organization that I'm with, I'm the Executive Director at Future Possibilities for Kids. Uh, located out of the Toronto area in Canada. Our website is www.fpcanada.org. Amazing. I'll put all those links in the description so people can check them out without typing. They can just click away. But thank you so much for coming on. It was um, a, a, a genuine pleasure to get those ideas off, off the ground. Yeah, it was, uh, it was. this was a great conversation. I appreciate the space and hopefully it's of uh, value and, and something interesting for uh, for your audience.